Christian author Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, she once had a conversation with a Greek friend of hers. Uh, and her, her friend said, she said, in, in English, you know, you people call the Olympics the Olympic Games. But that's not the proper rendering of the Greek word. They're not play. Uh, they're not sport. And Barbara said, well, uh, well, what's the right word then? And her friend said, I can't tell you. There is no English equivalent to the Greek word. And so Barbara began to uh, reflect on this. She's a pretty smart lady. <laughs> uh, here's what she said. She said this. She says, quote, Modern people want to have spiritual experiences without old words like sin and salvation. And we can understand why. She says those words have been used to abuse and exclude people. But the problem is there is no modern equivalent to them. The word sin cannot be translated into our modern therapeutic language. The word saved certainly doesn't translate into be spiritual. When you lose those words, you lose hold of the realities that they represent. End quote. Okay, so what do we do about this? What do we do about these old words? We go to the Bible. That's what we do. You see, one of the Bible's primary functions is to pour meaning into words like this. And there may be no better book in the Bible to understand that old word, salvation, better than the book of Exodus. Specifically, the story we come to today. The story we come to today is one of the most famous in all the Bible. It is the crossing of the Red Sea. And you see, the whole rest of the Bible actually looks back at this story as the paradigm of salvation. The whole Bible looks back at it. And so if, if you want to think of the book of Exodus as having three different acts to it, this story is the culmination, the climax of act number one. It brings act one to an end. And so let's turn there together, shall we? Let's look at the paradigm of salvation. It comes to us in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14. And we're going to read the whole chapter because it's really awesome. And that's why. Like, I thought about summarizing it, you know, because it's kind of long. But man, this thing's just too good. I think we need to read it. <laughs> this thing is really, really amazing. Uh, it's famous for a reason. <laughs> it's very memorable for a reason. This chapter is incredible. So let's just read it, shall we? I'll do my best to read it well <laughs> for you, all right? So just going to read the whole chapter. Exodus chapter 14, we'll start with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haheroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? 
We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. 
And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is God's word. Okay, let me first quickly address the elephant in the room. <laughs> I haven't addressed it yet, so let me just go ahead and do it now. So over and over, so far in Exodus, we have seen God harden Pharaoh's heart, right? We've seen that several times so far. We actually see it several times in our chapter today, okay? So God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, what does this mean? People have had a problem with this for like thousands of years, okay? They've had issue with it. And the reason people have a problem with it is because they assume that Pharaoh's heart begins in a neutral position toward God. Okay? Just neutral, you know? That Pharaoh, he's just a pretty good guy, you know? He's just a good fella. He's innocent. He's neutral. He's just a good guy. And then, you know, that mean old God. That mean old God, he just sticks his hand in Pharaoh's heart and then he turns it bad. Folks, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's ridiculous, okay? Pharaoh, um, he is a fella that is a critical, if not the critical part of a system that has brutally enslaved God's people for over 400 years. This is not a guy whose heart is in neutral, okay? No, sir. This is a guy whose heart has long been in reverse. Away from Yahweh. Away from Yahweh's desires. Away from Yahweh's heart. And so Pharaoh began with a hard heart. Okay? God simply hardened it further. You can do the same thing with steel. You know, steel is a very, very hard element, but you can actually make it harder through a process of freezing and unfreezing it. You can make it even harder. Well, that's all God is doing. Okay, Pharaoh begins not in neutral, uh-uh, no sir. His heart is very hard to begin with. God just hardens it further. So yes, God did harden Pharaoh's heart, but God didn't do anything that Pharaoh himself didn't want. Pharaoh wanted to hate Yahweh. He wanted to hate Yahweh's people, okay? This is not something that Pharaoh didn't want. Therefore, Pharaoh, like every human being, is still 100% responsible for his actions, okay? Still 100% responsible. Pharaoh did not start in a place of neutral, okay? Everybody with me on that? If you have any further questions, feel free to shoot me an email, talk to me after the service. Y'all can go through it in life groups, something like that, okay? But I know this is an issue that has been bothered people for a long time, but I would address it uh, here before we dive into our sermon. So that is the Elephant in the room, if you have any further questions, just let me know. We can talk about it later. So let's dive into the text as far as salvation is concerned. That old word, salvation. This text shows us three things about salvation. It shows us what we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved through. Okay, what we're saved by, saved from, saved by, and saved through. Number one in your outline. Hopefully you got one when you came in. Number one, what we're saved from what we're saved from. Okay, so Israel at this point in the story, they've now gone many miles out of Egypt, many miles toward the land of Canaan. Uh, and they come up against their first physical barrier, okay? That is the Red Sea, the Red Sea. And meanwhile, back in the Nile Valley, we read that Pharaoh suddenly has a change of heart. 
change of heart. Let's look at verse 5. Chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Okay, so uh, if you didn't know this, chariots were essentially ancient tanks. Okay? Uh, they were the great military weapon of the world at this time. And so Pharaoh decided to send 600 of them, 100 of them after the Israelites to slaughter them. Uh, and so Israel, now miles away from Egypt, from the Nile Valley, they look back and they see the chariots coming. And they realize that they're trapped. They're trapped. At their backs is the Red Sea, and then before them is Pharaoh's great army coming after them. And so what is their response? How do they respond to being trapped? Well, their first response is pathological delusion. Pathological delusion. Let's look at it. <laughs> Verses 11 and 12. Look at this. Look how they respond. Verse 11. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, why did I say that they are pathologically delusional here? I said that because this never actually happened. This never happened. Like if you've been with us with the sermon series or if you're familiar at all with the story, like they never did this. <laughs> they never went to Moses and said, hey, leave us alone. We like it here in Egypt. We don't want to be free. We want to stay here. They never did that. In fact, the text says they did the, the exact opposite. In chapter 4, it says that the people bowed down and worshipped God when they heard that he was setting them free. They worshipped God. They were thankful. They were grateful. They literally praised Yahweh for their upcoming freedom. They didn't tell Moses to leave them alone. And so the people have lost touch with reality. <laughs> They've lost touch with reality here. You see, if they were reasonable, if they still had a grip on reality, they would have probably said something like this. They probably would have said, Hey, uh, hey God, um, we really like those ten plagues that you brought down on the Egyptians? Could you bring one more? Could you bring, we like those 10. Could, could we have an 11th plague? I mean, that's reasonable, right? They just witnessed with their own eyes 10 plagues brought down upon their enemies, right? They just saw that Yahweh is omnipotent and he's on their side. They just saw it. <laughs> hey, we like those 10. Can we have an 11th plague? That's a reasonable response, isn't it? But that's not what they say. No. No. Why not? Why didn't they ask for an 11th plague? Well, here's the problem. Here's the problem. God's not even in the equation for Israel. Did you notice that? Did you notice they don't even mention his name here? They don't even mention God's name. Now, what's the point? What's the point? Well, the point is this. Modern Americans love freedom. It's been said that it is a modern America's highest value. 
Their highest value is our freedom. We love our freedom. We love it. Uh, and so, of course, the book of Exodus is all about freedom, isn't it? I mean, that's what the book is all about. Uh, but Exodus defines freedom in the opposite way that modern Americans do. In the opposite way. And so we, we touched on this a little bit last week. So to recap, modern folks define freedom as detachment. Detachment from any lord or master. Okay? Freedom is freedom from any and all restrictions on my individual choices. Okay? That's how modern America defines freedom. But Exodus says, first of all, that's impossible. It's impossible. You're always a slave to something. You cannot be completely attached from all lords and all masters. It's not possible. You're always a slave to something. You see, the text actually shows us this. So let's think about it together. By the modern definition of freedom, these Israelites are truly free, aren't they? Like at this point in the story, they should be totally free. They don't have any lords anymore. They don't have any masters anymore. They are totally free. Right? Well, the author of Exodus says, no, nah, not really. <laughs> in fact, they ain't free at all. The author is showing us they still slaves, big time. They are slaves to fear. They're slaves to their five senses. What their five senses are telling. They're slaves to their circumstances. And this has made them delusional. It's made them slaves. That's what slavery does. It makes you delusional as to what's really going on around you. It makes you not really understand your own reality when you are a slave. So the people are slaves, but Moses, well, Moses is much different than the people. Isn't his reaction a lot different than the Israelites? How is Moses here? How does he respond to being trapped between the sea and the army? He's calm. He's cool. He's collected. Like Moses is super chill here, isn't he? He's not afraid. Moses is not freaked out by his circumstances. Why not? Because Moses is free. Moses is free. <laughs> There's only one free Israelite in this story, and it's Moses. Moses is free. He's living in his freedom. Now, how did he become free? How did Moses get free? Well, he got free when he met the God of all creation at a burning bush. And at that bush, he entered into a covenant agreement of service with his creator. Okay? He's been in covenant service to his creator ever since the burning bush experience. And so biblical freedom is not detachment from all lords. No, it's attachment to the Lord of lords. It's attachment to your creator. You see, the Bible says true detachment is impossible. It's not even possible. So therefore, it's not about being detached from everything. It's being attached to the right thing, your creator. And when you're attached to him in worship and in service, your perspective on everything radically changes, like radically changes. And so the question is, what does God save us from? What does God save us from? He saves us from our little L lords, our counterfeit gods, our idols. 
That's what he saves us from. You say, well, I thought, I thought we were saved from sin. Well, yeah, we are. But you see, at the root of every sin is an idol that we're worshiping. There's a little L Lord that we're bowing down to. Okay? That's at the root of every sin. So, how do we then identify our idols? Our sins are kind of obvious, you know, because they're on the, most of the time, but they're, on, they're kind of on the surface. But how do we find out what the idol is underneath the sin? How do we find out? Well, maybe Rocky Balboa teaches us the best. Maybe Rocky's the best at this. So if you've seen Rocky 1, uh, Rocky is putting himself through all kinds of craziness, you know, preparing for the fight. Um, and Adrian, his girlfriend, comes to him and she asks him, she says, Rocky, why are you putting yourself through all of this? And Rocky says to her, he says, I just got to go the distance. I don't have to win the fight. I just have to go the distance because then I'll know I'm not a bum. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. Now, your hearts might not use exactly the same language, but every human being has to do something about encroaching bumness. Encroaching bumness. See, bumness is headed our way. <laughs> we're scared to death of it. We are scared to death that deep down we're bums. We're bums. And so everyone ends up saying the same thing as Rocky, just with a different idol put in the blank there. For Rocky, you know, he had to go the distance. Now, not all of us feel the need to go the distance with the heavyweight champion, right? No. But we do have something to deal with our bumness. We say, I just got to have blank, right? So that I know I'm not a bum. We say, I just got to have happy children. I just have to have a happy marriage. I just got to have a lot of money. I just have to have a successful career. I just have to have a lot of friends. I just have to have a master's degree. I, I just got to be popular in school. I just got to whatever. And then I'll know I'm not a bum. My personal idol, I'll go ahead and share it with you. I have several, but the main one has always been this one. I, I've always said to myself, I just got to be a pastor. And then I'll know I'm not a bum. I got to have a pulpit. And once I have that, then I'll know I'm not a bum. See, so the ministry itself has become my idol. What's controlling me? What is made me enslaved? And so you could fill in that blank with all, all kinds of different things. That's mine. And you know, whatever we fill in that blank, that is our Lord. That is our master. That is our idol. That is what's controlling us. Like completely controlling us. It controls every decision we make. It controls every action we take. Whatever you fill in that blank. I got a blank, so I know I'm not a bum. You are a slave to that. Whatever you fill in the blank. And look, I get it. I get it. This is hard to accept. <laughs> it's hard to accept that you are a slave to your idols. Because Americans, you know, we don't like that. We don't like the word slavery. We like freedom. So we don't like believing that we're slaves. This is hard for us. I get it. Uh, it was hard for Israel to accept too. Just look at our text today. 
<laughs> this is hard to, get, to accept. Uh, we'll actually see in a couple weeks, this is just remarkable. Um, we'll see in a couple weeks Israel say this to Moses. They will say, quote, In Egypt, we sat around mountains of meat. And you've brought us out here to starve. <laughs> it's pathological delusion. <laughs> right? In other words, they're saying, we weren't slaves back there. We were having a great time. It was party time back there. We had mountains of meat. <laughs> and look at what you did, Moses. You brought us out here to starve to death. It's pathological delusion. But you know what? That's what slavery causes. It causes you to be totally unaware of your actual reality around you. You think you're free while the whole time you've been a slave. It's hard to come to grips with, I get it. I'm in the same boat as you. <laughs> it's hard to come to grips with the fact that we're slaves to our idols. But the good news is, the sooner you do come to grips with it, the sooner you can be free. You see? The sooner you realize what your idol is, mine's a pulpit, you know. As soon as you realize what the idol is, then you're like, okay, I am a slave to that. And now, I can be free. I can be free from it. So that's the good news. And that is what we're saved from. We're saved from our idols. That's point number one. Point number two in your outline. What we're saved by. What we're saved by. Okay, so from the moment Pharaoh released the chariots... Israel was under a sentence of death, right? They could not compete with 600 tanks rolling in towards them, right? They had no way to do that. So as soon as Pharaoh released the chariots, they were under the sentence of death, every Israelite was, okay? But here's what's interesting. The moment that the very last Israelite stepped their foot over onto the other side of the Red Sea, as soon as that last foot hit, well, then all of Israel came out from under the condemnation of death, didn't they? And in fact, as soon as that last person stepped foot across the other side of the Red Sea, it was then that Pharaoh and his army came under the condemnation of death. Now, how did that happen? Hmm. And why? <laughs> well... It's because as Pharaoh's army raced across the Red Sea to slaughter Israel, they encountered something on the way. They encountered an invisible warrior. An invisible warrior. Look at verses 13 and 14. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Just be still. <laughs> you see, Christian salvation is utterly different than any other world religion. Or any other worldview, period. It's different than atheism or agnosticism, secularism. It is radically different than everything else. And let me show you how. 
in every other religion, or even we'll even say secularism, it's kind of the same thing. Like you get converted, right? You can get converted to that religion, but here's how you do it. What you do is you begin a long process in which you use the resources of the religion, you know, whatever they give you, use the resources to then release the shackles that bind you or to attain enlightenment or to escape the final judgment or to make it to paradise, okay? You use the resources, what the religion gave you, right? And then when you die, you do this. You cross your fingers. And you hope that you checked all the right boxes of the religion. And so then when you die and you pass over to the next life, you still got your fingers crossed. And when you see your deity, whoever he might be, he or she might be, and your heart's racing, you know, you just say, whew. You watch as the deity, you know, it just counts all your boxes that you checked. Uh, and then if you've checked all the boxes, then he's, he gives you two thumbs up. He says, great job. You're good to go. And then you get to come on in to paradise or enlightenment or whatever, okay? So that's how it works. Uh, and you essentially save yourself, right? You save yourself. You check all the boxes. Like all the religion does, all the deity does is just give you the boxes to check. Like here's the proper boxes. Check these, okay? You check these. And there's even a Christian version of this, right? It's... You, here's the boxes, you check the boxes, and then at the end of your life, hopefully, you did enough to earn it, right? So it's every other system, including atheism, is self-salvation. It's self-salvation. You check the boxes, you, ch you save yourself. And Christianity says, hogwash. Hogwash! That's nonsense, Christianity says you can never, ever, never check enough boxes to be right with God, ever. You cannot in any way, shape, or form save yourself. You are hopelessly in bondage to your idols. Hopelessly. So, on Christianity, how then are you saved? The same as Israel. The same. You're saved by a warrior. You're saved by one who fights for you. You're saved by one who decisively acts on your behalf. You only need to do what? Be still. <laughs> Be still and watch him win. <laughs> and that's it. What did the Israelites do when David was fighting Goliath? Nothing. <laughs> they just watched their champion win. And that is exactly the message of Christianity. We do nothing to save ourselves. Nothing. All we have to do is to be still and watch our champion win. <laughs> That's it. He wins on our behalf. Oh, and here's, a, here's another cool thing. A uh, really cool thing. Is... Um, you don't have to wait until you die to get this freedom. <laughs> you can have it right now. There's none of this on Christianity, you see? There's no uh, waiting until your last breath and just crossing your fingers and saying, I hope, I hope. 
You know, I talk to so many people over the years and I just say, you know, I share the gospel with them and I say, well, so do, do you understand? They say, yeah, yeah, I think I understand. I said, so, so are you a Christian? Would you say that you're a Christian? They say, well, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be. And I said, oh, you don't get it at all. Okay, let's start over. <laughs> let's start back at the beginning. All right? You don't get it. There is no trying. There is no I hope. It's be still. Just be quiet. Okay? Don't move <laughs> and just watch your champion win. He will win your salvation for you. And you get this salvation, you get this freedom right now. You get it now. There's a decisive moment in your life at this nanosecond of conversion where you pass from death to life. You pass from slavery to freedom. And it is the Lord God himself who's your champion. He is the one who does it. You are saved by the decisive act of your creator. Okay, that is how you were saved. And we see that more than clearly here in our text today. And someone might say at this point, they might say, well, preacher, yeah, but I mean, Israel had a lot of trust, right? They had to trust Yahweh. I mean, they had to have a lot of faith, didn't they? My answer is, well, kind of. Not so much. <laughs> Not really. And here's what I mean by that. Here's my belief. I shared this with my life group this week. So uh, here's my belief about what happened that day crossing the Red Sea. Some of the Israelites walked across dry ground like this. I mean, they're strutting. You know what I mean? Like they're strutting, baby. They're like, I knew he could do it. <laughs> I knew he could do it. This is my God that's doing this. This is my Yahweh who is saving us. <laughs> I knew he'd do it. I knew he'd come through. They're strutting. They're singing. They got a smile from ear to ear. They're just happy-go-lucky. They just love this. They're just full of faith and trust in their God, and they're strutting through that Red Sea, through those walls of water. <laughs> so I believe there's that group of people who are doing that. And then I also believe there's another group, probably a much larger group. And they're walking across the Red Sea like this. I'm going to die, 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 I'm going to die. These walls are going to crash on us at any second, we're all going to die. So there's two groups of people walking through there. Now, which ones were saved? <laughs> all of them. All of them. The ones with great, big, awesome faith. And the ones with eensy, teensy, beensy, little mustard seed faith. I bet they had to drag some across. You know what I mean? By their hair. You know, if they had any hair, drag them across the Red Sea. They're just kicking and screaming the whole way. Who was saved? Everybody was saved. Why? Because their salvation had nothing to do with them. It had nothing to do with them. It had nothing to do with the quality or the quantity of their faith. It had nothing to do with that. Yahweh saved them based on his own desire to save them. Period. Period. They played no role <laughs> in their salvation. And neither did you. You see, folks, it's not the quantity or the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. 
Every one of us in this room, I think, if we're being honest, has pitiful, small faith. I know I'll raise my hand. Pitiful. <laughs> it's pitiful. It's small. And it's irrelevant. Because it's not the quantity or the quality that matters. It's the object. It is God alone who rescues you. It is God alone who sets you free. It's God alone who saves you. You don't play a role. Now, how exactly does God do this, though? So it, we kind of see this with Israel, but how did that work with me and you? How did it work for the rest of the world? How does he fight for us? That brings us to our final point. We'll close with this. What we're saved through. What we're saved through. So notice something interesting here about who Moses is. Who Moses is. So we've seen in our story today the people acting stupidly, right, delusionally. And then we see Moses acting wonderfully, right? Like he's been great. We see the people, uh, they've lost their minds. They've lost touch with reality. Okay, that's what we've seen. And then we've seen Moses being strong and fearless. Right, just resolute in his confidence. But watch something interesting. Did you catch it? Look at verse 15. Look at this. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Now wait a second. What's going on here? <laughs> What's going on here? I mean, Moses has been steadfast in his resolve. Yet God rebukes him? Like, he gets rebuked as if he was the one acting stupidly. Moses here gets what the people deserve. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Moses is their mediator. He is their mediator. Moses is their representative before God. And we'll see this kind of thing happen over and over again in the rest of the book of Exodus. Moses will get what the people deserve. And so therefore we can say that Israel was saved by God through a mediator. Okay, Through a mediator. The mediator would get what the people deserve. Okay? Saved by God through a mediator. That's how Israel was saved. And wouldn't you like to know it? <laughs> That's exactly how you and I were saved too. That's exactly how you and I were saved. You see, as great as Moses is, one day, many years after the crossing of the Red Sea, an even greater mediator would come. <laughs> one day, in a lowly stable in Bethlehem, the invisible warrior would become visible. And he would not only take the rebuke from God that we deserve, but he will take the wrath of God that we deserve for our idolatry, for our sin, for our rebellion. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, absorbed all the punishment that we deserve. Why? Because He is our mediator. He's our mediator. He's our warrior king. 
who defeated all our enemies and put them to shame on the cross. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The author says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die, and only by dying could He break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way, could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves? <laughs> and so, my friends, this is Christian salvation. Our warrior king became a slave for you and for me. He took our place on our crosses and he bore the punishment that we deserved for our idolatry. And he conquered our enemies, death, hell, and the grave <laughs> by his own precious blood. Don't you see? That's Christian salvation. This is it in a sentence. By God's decree, you were saved through the blood of Jesus. And now your idols are dead and your sins are forgiven forever. <laughs> don't you see and this ain't just a one-time thing folks that ain't a one-time thing your past sins are done your present sins they're done too oh and your future sins they're done they're all done uh, your sins are forever forgiven by god's decree through the blood of his son through the blood of your warrior king and your sins Friends, they've been thrown forever into what God calls the sea of forgetfulness. <laughs> Through the blood of Jesus, God forgets all of your sins forever. The hymn writer probably says it best. He says, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah knoweth. None. Jehovah knoweth none. 